Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am speaking with Max and Noel Venning. Max and Noel are the founders of Three Sheets Cocktail Bar and Little Mercy's Bar and Restaurant in London. And more recently, Shop Cuvée, a wine and food delivery company that has been one of the great success stories of the past year. The brothers are also co-authors of the book Batched and Bottled, which features 50 recipes for, you guessed it, batched and bottled cocktails. On this episode, we talk about the events of the past year and how the bar industry in London has fared. We discuss the rise in home delivery options and what that means for the industry, as well as talking about reopening and how drinks like the French 75 put three sheets on the map. Finally, we discuss how the Vennings have incorporated batching and fermenting techniques into their bar programme. Enjoy. No, Max, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Yeah, good, man. How are you? Good. Very good, thank you. We're in different places, even though we're brothers, but that's fine, I suppose. Does that surprise people that sometimes that you ought to just be in the same place all the time? <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. So you've opened a wine shop. Tell me about that. Obviously, well-documented uh, closure of everything in our industry. Um, we were sort of unsure about which way to go, but we started, we started sort of bottling individual serve cocktails, you know, basically delivering them to order, um, like fresh, so they would arrive cold with ice, with fruit and stuff like that. Um, and that was our first couple of weeks. And then our other business, the restaurant, Top Cuvée, started selling wine online. Basically, as soon as they told people not to go to the restaurant or bar, but we were allowed to stay open. So as soon as that mm. happened, we started doing this. Um, that was an interesting period, wasn't it? Where we had about a week of no one go out anywhere, but you've, you've got to stay open. So don't expect any support from anyone. <laughs> yeah. So um, we did that for about a week and a half and then spoke to our business partner who we have in the restaurant. And we said, let's um, just combine those two things. And so we launched Shop Cuvée, as it's called. And then... Um, that's just been it's been an absolutely incredible year to be honest it's it, yeah. we've we were doing it out of the restaurant now we've opened our own shop uh which is around the corner and then we're we're actively looking for sites so we've got offers in on two more spaces as well so it's been a it's been an incredibly um productive year yeah yeah exactly yeah. um and a a very um like strange year, but very productive, very satisfying, and also learn like a new skill, which is e-commerce, or trying to learn that skill. So it's been it's been fun, but different. So I mean, you've not just survived; you've thrived. Like it sounds like you've made a profitable business and something that you want to expand. I think it's, you know, we opened three sheets five years ago. We opened the restaurant two years ago. Little Mercy's two and a half years ago, and you know we were you know, expanding our sort of portfolio of bars, as you call it, but they were with different business partners and they're all individual sites. And whereas we think Three Sheets is maybe a scalable business, it hadn't sort of kicked on yet. Whereas when we opened, or after opening the shop six months in, it was pretty clear that, you know, this could be a really, really scalable business and something that, you know, over the next five or 10 years could be like a really big, you know, growth well it is a growth industry natural wine and it and it and it could be a real big business like a life-changing business for us so there's been a bit big focus on making sure that we maximize lockdown and then also maximize coming out of lockdown which is the period we're in at the moment so 
it's been it's been absolutely mad to be honest and if you'd asked me a year ago that we'd be doing this now i, I wouldn't have said there'd be any <laughs> chance of it mm. Here's that funny thing with bars, isn't it? When you, I mean, most of us get into opening bars as a kind of passion project that hopefully will pay the wages. And then once the dust settles and you find success, find some success, you're like, cool. Well, how do we, how do we scale this? And then you realize that scaling bars is actually really difficult. You've got to kind of do a new opening every time and it's different place, you know, different clientele, perhaps maybe you want to switch up the offering. It's not, sort of scalable in the, in the true sense of sort of retail right exactly it's 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 difficult every site is so specific and you know when we're talking about selling stuff on the internet you know there is a limitless number of customers right and each bar has a catchment as you say you know it'll have a slightly different demographic as we know you know landlords and licensing are just a, a constant headache um and over the last sort of 10 years, there's been a real onus put on residential over sort of bars, restaurants and, and clubs. So, yeah, the e-commerce has its has its challenges, but it's it's definitely much more easily scalable and also rapidly scalable as well. So you're doing all the fulfillment yourself out of this room that you're currently sat in at the moment? All the fulfillment is out of the shop. So, yeah, with the basement is all the stock and all the packaging and it's all fulfilled there. And we get a DPD collection twice a day, I think. Um, uh, seven days a week, we get a collection. So people can receive stuff seven days a week, which is cool. And it's all done by DPD. You're not doing like any hand delivery or... Yeah, we we still, we ca- we carried on the bike courier that we started at the beginning. At the beginning, we used Stuart and we had a couple of guys, like independent guys to do it. But now the majority of our bike couriers are like we have a team basically um and then the odd one we use Stuart if it's like a special request or it's a bit too far out of the the catchment zone for delivery but yeah now we have like a fleet of courier bikes so yeah. you're doing same, same day delivery as well yeah same day so if you're if you're within the uh like the I think it's six six kilometer radius from the shop you can order up until 9 p.m that's good um, and you're doing cocktails as well? Yeah, we do cocktails as well. Yeah, the the, the three sheets cocktails, um, currently we all we are batching them in the restaurant because it's not open. So it's like rent-free space. So we can batch pallets and pallets of cocktails like once, twice a month. Um, and then because it's the location's just right on the corner, all we have to do is like we have a couple of big trolleys and we just cart them around as and when. The shelves need restocking. Yeah, it's pretty handy at the moment. So you guys um, have written a book on batching cocktails um, and, and bottling them up. So you're obviously, you know, right at the top of this tree. I know that you're big advocates of it. You're not the inventors of it or anything like that, but you, you've you kind of used it in order to create really great, consistent cocktails in your venues that you can turn out easily and quickly. And the people that listen to this podcast are often looking to folks like yourselves for tips and advice and learnings, mistakes that you can make in it, along the way um, so that they can integrate some of these cool tricks into their own bars. That said, I would imagine most people listening to this podcast are already batching in some way because it's so ubiquitous now across the industry. Yeah, um, It's uncommon really to come across a venue that is still picking up every bottle um that that needs to be picked up in order to create a cocktail with five ingredients in it um so do you want to talk to me a little bit about 
you know, your 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 when you first came across batching and 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 how how you first sort of perceived it, what your take was was on it? Because I think most people balk a little bit at the idea initially. You know, yeah. whether it's five years ago, ten years ago, they come across it like, what? No, no, no we're supposed to mix everything. Um, <laughs> and yeah, then, yeah, and assume, yeah. Everyone, the initial reaction for I think everyone has a similar one. The first time they are, are presented with this idea of batching and, and bottling cocktails, because um, it's something new. Because yeah, that's the the, whole, the mysticism of all the ingredients and mixing them together is like ingrained in every young bartender's head. I, I actually came across batching for the first time when I worked at Slug and Lettuce at the very beginning of my career, they batched, they would do, we would batch like the bases for, you know, your sex on the beach, your Long Island iced teas and stuff like that. So it'd be like, yeah. And then any fresh ingredient was not batched basically. And that, and it just, after working there, it was like second, kind of like second nature for me from then on just to speed it up. Um, because that was the whole ethos of looking at it's two form cocktails, seven days a week. You had to be fast, so you couldn't be grabbing every ingredient for a Long Island iced tea and pouring it into uh, a shaker. Um, and yeah, and that, as, that, as that was my first ever proper foray into cocktails, and there was quite a lot of batching involved, it's always kind of just seemed normal to me, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Grew up around it. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. It is, especially with a drink like Long Island Iced Tea, which tends to be like high volume, right? And you got to pick up five different bottles of spirits and put half a measure in, in the, into the shaker. It's crazy when you think about it. I mean, it's what's crazy, I'll tell you what is crazy. I spent a year or two working in one of the first cocktail bars I worked in, um, I don't know, like 17, 18 years ago. And it never once occurred to me to batch the ingredients for a Long Island iced tea. And I don't know how many I must have made, how many times I must have oh. picked up, you know, a bottle of tequila and put half a measure of it into a cocktail shaker, <laughs> followed by the rum or whatever. Yeah. But it does. It's one. Of, it is one of those things where you like once you do it, you're like, why would you yeah. not do this? Yeah, exactly. Thing. I think it's the same, similar sort of thing. And I mean, if you look at any other industry, any other trade, it's like you you basically try and make the way you work more efficient and to not batch i mean long island is perfect example to not batch that together is 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 pretty much actively making choosing to make yourself less efficient um and obviously it's well documented on how many levels that affects not just you as a bartender but the business the customer you know the workflow it just it's almost like there is literally no benefit to not do it apart from just saying it's not traditional. Do you, do you think there's a certain customer who sees value in the picking up of multiple bottles and without that, they, it diminishes the cocktail experience? If you look at, say, like an old-fashioned in the bar, we'll make that with sugar syrup, bitters and whiskey. And we'll do that to order because... In terms of efficiency, it's not dragging you down that much because obviously all those ingredients are to hand and it's quite a quick movement and it's not going to take too long because whereas, you know, we want to batch and be efficient and we want to make sure that people are getting drinks quickly and drinks are consistent and, you know, all of all of the obvious points and we don't want to, like, harp on about theatre behind the bar but we do believe there needs to be a focal point and people come to the bar to see 
not they don't come to the bar to see action behind the bar but it it creates like a, an energy in the room so we make sure that mm. that still exists and there are definitely customers that still want to see that so we just have to i mean we just think about balance so you know yes we wrote a book about batching and bottling but you know we make a daiquiri and an old fashioned to order in three sheets because we understand that the the point of a bar and the energy in a room is about the people, the music, the atmosphere, but also about action going on. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, flaring or making a big show or the bartender's the most important person, but it definitely, you know, needs some energy in putting into the room. So I think customers do want to see at least something happening, you know. There are there have been bars that just do bottle cocktails, you know, and they're definitely like a different vibe, right? It's like a different energy. Um so we want to make sure we still keep that energy behind the bar. And I think customers do like it. But then they wouldn't come to your bar, right? That's the whole thing. You know, you've, your product is what it is and it's for a certain type of customer. And if that, that, that customer just shouldn't necessarily be there if what they want to see is like, you know, three bottles of like bo- different color bowls liqueurs picked up and put in a cocktail shaker and thrown around the place, you know? Um, I, yeah, I think the customers that want to see that, I think this kind of comes into partly why we did quite a lot of batching at Three Sheets is our focus was creating a bar that was a traditional bar where the interaction was between guests and like human interaction instead of the the idea of watching someone make a drink. And if you if I was this customer sat in front of me who wants that grabbing of five or six bottles and we don't do it, you can, because you're not, spending so much time making a drink you can engage in them in other ways like having a conversation asking about how their day was you know making them feel comfortable in other ways and uh that isn't the, like the theater that max was talking about so and and personally i think that makes more sense in a bar than watching someone grab five six seven bottles and taking three times as long to make a drink it does it does become sort of that whole thing about what the customer is expecting and it feels to me like the kind of consumer kind of guest who is paying for a night out where they get to view a bartender like a spectacle on a stage and uh, you know admire it admire them from a distance very little conversation and then sort of you know build value into their drinking experience as a result of that is a dying breed now, it used to be, you know, go back t- 20 years, that was a lot of what a bartender meant to a person. I mean, I remember starting bartending and everyone used to say, oh, yeah, it's like Tom Cruise, like Tom Cruise. You know, but because they, they saw the bartender as this actor on a stage, really, more than someone who is there f- for conversation and to build value in other ways. Yeah, I th- I think you you definitely had this, I mean... There was like a, an, an, it, there was a necessity for our industry to professionalize itself, because for a long time it was seen as a non-profession. It was seen as, you know, either showmanship or it was just something you do while you were, you know, this like looking for another job or this is not your real job. So, you know, we went through a phase where it was professionalizing and very serious and very drawn back from the customer. Um, but now it's, you know, pretty commonly accepted. It's, you know, people are comfortable to go into this hospitality as a service trade not you know universally but definitely more than it was so we can be more relaxed and you know obviously the conversation over the last five years has been okay your job as a bartender is now as a host 
And if we're coming back to batching and bottling, you know, we both first started working in pubs and, you know, the, the beauty of a pub or the beauty of a, like a, a traditional sort of coffee shop in across Europe or a tobacco in, you know, France or a coffee cafe in Italy is the conversation that happens between you and the customers or the customers themselves. And that was a big focus when we opened the bar was to make sure that whatever we were doing behind the bar wasn't taking so much of our attention, however busy we were, that we could make sure that that is a constant throughout the night. Even if we're, you know, busy, busy on a Saturday evening, we can still make sure that we're talking to people or introducing people or making sure that everything's going on. Um, and doing so whilst maintaining, you know, that, that bubble of energy. It's so much easier when you've only got one or two bottles to pick up, right? Just to be able to have that conversation and make time for that conversation and, and be able to properly engage in it rather than thinking yeah. about the next three bottles and measurements you've got to consider for this next drink. Yeah, and I think that's like um, a, a massive, like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm the fastest bartender I can make this drink by touching every single bottle and I, I'm really accurate. And, I, you know, it's like, that's like, oh, it's just showing off really when it's like, yeah, but if you put them all together and made the drink in half the time, that makes you a better bartender because you are you know that you're going to have to do it anyway. So thinking about things laterally and thinking about things logically to make sure that things are going out consistently and accurately, like, does that make, for me, that makes you a better bartender. You know, the best bartenders are the people that can analyze like, their work environment become more efficient make sure that they look like they're creating a space where they can serve the customer to the best of their ability rather than the fastest bartender yeah yeah i think it's about adding it's about looking at where you're going to heighten the experience for the guest the most and that starts with understanding the guest and the venue and then you know you you build in these efficiencies or like protocols in order to 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 best you know get the get the best experience for those guests i mean i remember <clears throat> with pearl when we opened pearl um the one of the big things about that bar um was quite elaborate sort of theatrical garnishes and drink and, and sort of visual appeal for the drinks very of its time and um the only way we could make that work was by batching everything like if we tried to kind of build every single cocktail at you know into into a shaker pour it out and then start working on three elements of garnishing and whatever it was foams and gels and all that sort of stuff you know each drink would have taken 10 minutes it's just totally it wouldn't have worked at all so it was done by necessity and yeah we you know we still didn't have a lot of time for conversation you know there were servers on the floor who did, did but that, we did yeah. have time to make these drinks that looked like they'd taken 10 or 15 minutes to prepare but in fact only took three or four minutes because we'd done most of the work beforehand yeah and as you've mentioned a couple of times it's like super site specific right and you and, and customer specific and there are bars that have you know labored over 10 15 ingredient drinks that are absolutely slammed and packed and even though you have to wait long for a drink you know they're fully booked every single night so that is, you know, like site specific, it is dependent on which like audience you have. And if we're talking about three sheets, you know, the audience wanted things quickly. We also, it's also tiny. So 
you know, we can't be in a position where people are waiting 10 minutes for a drink. They have to get it in two or three minutes and they have to have three or four drinks in an hour and they have to leave or we don't kick them out. But normally, you know, you have that cycle where it's like, okay, they've, they've had three, four drinks, they move on and we can get more customers in. You know, that was definitely part of our business model because we're like, okay, we've only got 25 people in here, so we need to have a turnover. Otherwise, we won't make enough money to stay open. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Talk to me a bit about the French 75 because that was one of the drinks on your original menu. I don't know if it's still on the menu or obviously you're not open at the moment. Will it be on the menu when you reopen? Yeah, it, it will be, even though I've called for something new for quite a while. But Max and Rosie both probably quite rightly because it's a popular drink are keeping it on the menu yeah yeah i think we you know for for us we said like you know we were like oh cool it's done we should move forwards and it's probably like a little bit of a you know maybe a strange comparison to make but someone said to me once i was like oh we might take it off the menu and they were like oh look if you go and see (laughs) the rolling stones (laughs) you want you want them to you want them to hear the greatest. You want to hear the greatest hits, not their new album, right? So, yeah. it's a consistent seller. The other eight drinks on the menu we can change. You know, it's a short menu, um, and you know we sell it. It's one of the bottle cocktails we sell, and it's like the the the, the biggest seller. It's 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 sort of its own sort of thing, um, which is you know strange. It took us a while to sort of develop and get right, but from the first idea of the bar. We just said, we came up with this drinks idea. It was like, oh, let's have a bottled one. We didn't want it to be a signature drink. We just wanted it to be like a cool option. And actually that was more about, you know, making sure that we had variety on the menu. And whereas we're talking about batching and bottling, we're not going to say, okay, everything needs to be a bottled cocktail. Everything needs to be batched. But you can't, obviously you can make a French 75 to order, but the, the that version of a French 75, you can't make to order because it's carbonated, right? I mean, you can but it's going to be a badly carbonated drink if you make it to order. So, you know, it's just an, a, di- a point of difference so the customer can experience something new or different and they can look at the menu and go, hey, I can get, you know, something that's shaken to order, but I can also get something that's poured straight from a bottle and there's like a mystique around that, just at least a point of interest. I suppose in a way this is sort of one of the pitfalls of, of batching in that if you decide to take... Uh, a drink off the menu it's difficult to reproduce because these tend to be the, the sort of drinks that are appropriate for batching tend to be made from ingredients and mixed together in such a way that they have to be done in advance right yeah. I mean I guess it's not always the case but something like the French 75 where you say, like you say you've got issues with carbonating on the fly it's like yeah. it's either on the menu or it's off the menu there's no like yeah. you can't come in and go oh look make me a french 75 for old time's sake and you go all right well i've still got the ingredients obviously i'll put it together for you yeah but i mean i guess yeah. that's a bit like going to a restaurant right it's like you know you don't you don't turn up to a fancy restaurant and say i had a, an amazing fish dish here last year with this brilliant sauce that you came up with i'll, yeah. I'll have that thank you <laughs> yeah could you imagine oh yeah, I think we've got like this internal dialogue, you know, and I definitely have it from when I was training with the drink factory that, you know, a customer, you know, everything should be like 100% consistent. And if they come in and have a Manhattan, you know, one year and then the next year, it should be exactly the same. And, you know, we should always have the drinks that used to be on the menu available. And that was drilled into me. And then over the course of opening three sheets, I was like, you know what, like how many customers really care? Um, firstly, and secondly, like, 
you know, you're never going to have exactly the same Manhattan or Daiquiri or Martini. It's always going to be slightly different, whether it's batched or whether it's made to order. And actually, isn't that sort of the thing that keeps us going as humans? You know, you remember that particular Martini once that was like life changing or whatever it was. But you need those nuances between them to make things interesting. So if you are going to take a drink off the menu, that's fine. Leave it. How many customers are going to like stand up and walk out because it's not on the menu? It's not going to happen. You can move them onto something else. Yeah, so yeah. we'll take the 75 off then. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we'll leave that on. <laughs> It'd be quite fun if um, this, the argument about whether it should stay on or not plays out on this podcast and a final decision has come to that we have to stick to and it's forever written into Perfect. audio yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um just on that though max i was thinking like there's certain venues isn't there where possibly you you want total consistency and i'm thinking places where that might be frequented by people that travel a lot like maybe even a, a good airport bar or somewhere where it's a location where international customers just flock there like right this is my place from home right and they want that that consistent Manhattan or Martini, and because I've I've I'm sure I've come across customers before who, a bit like this. It tends to be when I'm guest bartending, and they're like, "Yeah, I come here, you know, I come here once every three months when I'm in town. I always drink this," and they tend they they would strike me as the kind of customer who might get upset when things deviate. Yeah, I think there definitely are those customers. Um, I mean, I just think. Yeah, maybe it's trend-led as well, you know, because, you know, I mean, we're operating where we're not like a classic bar. We're not like a historic bar. We're not somewhere, you know, like, say, Raffles in Singapore, you go for the Singapore Sling. You know, we we can say whatever is about that drink, but obviously that does need to be consistent. But I think my argument is that within the bounds of your customer's taste, it will be. But it will always be slightly different, right? Instead of like constantly searching for that control, we just have something where we can be a bit yeah. more flexible with it. Um, and I think just speaking from experience, you know, we just don't have many customers like that. But that might be because of the style of, you know, bar we are. I mean, but it's the same in the restaurant as well. I think the the food scene in London is definitely more like, you know, hey, what what have we got? in season and we're going to choose how to cook it and that's going to change from time to time so you know menus and in restaurants and bars are changing all the time um and i think there is a acceptance from guests on a broader scale that that will happen yeah i mean i think that um at the sort of higher end inconsistency is sort of more celebrated now isn't it Mm. there has to be a justification for it it's got to be like, well, it's seasonal or, you know, the farmer um, didn't feed the chickens the same way this year yeah. or the, the barley harvest was late because of the summer, so the whiskey ended up tasting like this. People want that story, right, because it builds in the sort of provenance and the journey and the, the added value to the product. And so there there is that almost search for inconsistency. I mean, we get excited now about, you know, whiskies and cognacs that are released, you know, more on like an annual annual. Um, frequency and then looking at what it might be that has affected the flavor this year as opposed to that year and actually consistency then starts to become a bit bland and homogenized and you know yeah i think it's this you know search for people people want to have a unique experience and that just all plays into that um 
and I suppose you know to actually answer the question you ask about those customers is just it's not really a space that we play in um, because of the, the venues we operate so you know we have customers that come in and just drink margaritas but you know they're not fussy about them they're pretty chilled out about them you know we've we're really, I mean, every single bar owner on the planet will say this, but we're really, we genuinely are really, really lucky with the customers we've got. You know, we've had to ask one person to leave in the five years that we've been open. Sorry about um, that. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't my best <laughs> self that night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, we, you know, we're lucky and, you know, part of the argument is we've created that atmosphere, we've created that environment. You know, we're lucky with the staff, Rosie and Simone, that have built, as good a relationships with our regulars that, that we ever had or even better. So we just don't play in a space where we have this, these people coming for, even with the French 75, you know, that has changed, right? It's got a Vajou in it, uh, ice harvest of in it from Canada, which is completely different every single year. So the drink adapts, we have to change to it, but we just have to trust ourselves and the customers trust us, I guess. That's the, the main thing. Okay. So talk a little bit more about the French 75, about, you know, obviously there's a classic, which I expect most people are, are aware of. Um, gin, lemon, sugar, champagne, a uh, bit of um, cherry in there, usually, I think, um, or, or garnishes of cherry. Talk to me about how that started as an influence and then the de- development of process and then, as you say, how the, how the drinks changed and what's in it. I suppose, you know, it's one of those classic cocktails that we... Um, that is a great drink, you know, we're not saying it's a bad drink, but I think that it was born out of the idea that... You know, it's always flat by the bottom of it because you've got fresh lemon juice and champagne in there, which is not a great combination, like, in terms of making sure that it's fizzy all the way through. So we were just like, oh, cool. So how can we remove that issue and, you know, create something that is delicious but really carbonated, really fizzy the whole way down? And then also, as we mentioned before, you know, how can we do something that will create a point of difference for the bar, for the drink, for the bar. Um, and then we just had to come around to a way of figuring out how to do it. Obviously, we we wanted to, to be clear because we had to carbonate it and want to be properly fizzy. But at the time, we had about £1.20 in the bank, so we couldn't buy any equipment or anything like that. So it was like a long process. But look, well, luckily, the situation was we had, we got the keys to the bar and we traded for two months before doing any renovations. And it was like a cafe before so we like sawed a hole in the cafe bar top and put a gastronome in there with holes in the bottom as an ice well and like no glass wash all that stuff yeah we didn't yeah. have a nice machine so we had to buy in no glass all of that stuff it was an it was actual, fun like, it was fun <laughs> it was a bit yeah a bit ramshackle let's say yeah it was a lot of fun um so we had the time to develop that and get to the point where we got the recipe down to where we want it to be completely clear we got the carbonation down and then um we sort of like bottled it without a label or anything like that so it was just being served like as a casual sort of homemade product vibe and then we just did um it was a mate's birthday and he asked for a bottle so we put a label on it and then that looked great so we sort of rolled on from there and then i think it was a very popular drink and then um it became like a trendy drink and i don't know if we had a part to play in that but I think some gin brands were pushing it as well as like the serve of the time. So there was this, this movement forward of Friends 75 and we probably had a small part to play in that, but it was also happening at the same time. And then it just became like almost what we were known for. There was a time when it was like 
almost half of the sales were just that drink. Um, and it just became its own little beast, I suppose, which was great for us because it sort of put us on the map a little bit. Were the gin brands pr- like pushing the classic version or were they pushing your recipe? Uh, pushing our recipe, yeah. So they were pushing the classic, but well, they, were, they were pushing the classic and buying it off us, buying the yeah. bottled recipe off us. So, but what, it was with just their gin in it. They the, like you hey, were manufacturing with their gin this, this. to sell to. Yeah. So yeah. we yeah yeah basically <laughs> yeah um, it was one of those genius yeah. models. <laughs> um, but they yeah it just became like a there was a big push. I remember the first two years we opened there was a big push from a few different brands. It wasn't just one, and it was like okay cool this is this new well it's not a new cocktail but this is a cocktail everyone's talking about and they just we were constantly using an example of how to do mm. a contemporary version of it. Um, and you know it was you know it's a, like a it's a very specific version of it it doesn't taste a lot like a classic friend 75 the, the the dna of it is there but it's definitely a different drink and we have customers come in and they're like oh i've heard you do like an incredible 75 order it and they are at, like yeah devastated because it's just so far away from what they were expecting and they send it back and they're like and you only picked up one bottle as well furious yeah. about that yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's it, Max always used to say that is that cocktails are um, customers have a lot more scope for complaint with cocktails because it's made in front of them compared to a bottle of wine. If a bottle of wine not doesn't taste right, you would never blame the restaurant, right, or the or the bar that serves you the bottle of wine. It's always this mystical third party that's not present. So there's never any. Uncom- really uncomfortable situations, right? But if someone doesn't like a cocktail, uh, the guest or customer usually has can be quite vociferous about it, and then that creates this whole like scenario that you just don't seem to get with other drinks. Yeah, it's weird. It's definitely the, and it's something we spoke about when we opened the bar. We wanted to create it so it didn't have that air of cocktail bar, which was like. You know, we wanted it to feel more like a wine bar because they generally are more relaxed. If you're talking about the, you know, like true sort of French sense of a wine bar, um, so we wanted to make that feeling. But yeah, you definitely have a difference. You know, I work I work in the restaurant sometimes when it's open, work in the bar, and you know, across the board, we have the a- attitude that if a customer doesn't like something, it just gets replaced with something that they will hopefully like. You know, that's not the issue, but we def I definitely notice more that in the bar there is like this oh this is not right and it is your fault in whatever way it is which is just it's it's just so bizarre especially when you're like hey no worries you don't like that just have something else but there's still that sort of tension is maybe too strong a word maybe there's something in the like seeing of the ingredients um you know, if you think like a TV chef, when you see all the ingredients laid yeah. out, you kind of anticipate what the dish is going to taste like, and then you know, it, you know, expect it to taste that way. Whereas with batching and and pouring out of one bottle, you don't get to see anything go in, and so there's a there's still a, a sort of element of surprise, yeah, and, and also a loss, perhaps some sort of loss of anticipation around what this is going to taste like because you haven't seen. You know, maybe that piece of fruit being juiced or that bottle being picked up. And 
perhaps people are doing kind of like mental arithmetic as they're watching cocktails being made in that traditional manner. Oh, right, yeah. he's got a bit of that, he's so it's going to taste that. like that. Yeah. Bit of that. And, and then even if it's a bad cocktail, that's not too much of a surprise because you've seen all of these elements come together. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've physically seen them put them in. So, like, every, you've seen everything that's listed go in. So... Mm. It should taste like that. It's meant to taste like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is maybe some sort of anticipation, and I don't sort of begr- really begrudge people with the French seventy five, especially because because they see it on the menu and they see a French seventy five, and it says lemon, gin, you know, vajou, orange flower, and and like a, a wine. So for sure, if they come in and just see it on the menu and order it, then and they don't get what they want, then that's fine. We can make like a classic one. Yeah, of course. But you can like I think all three of us could attest to that. You can after doing working in this industry for so long you can kind of get a sense of what the guest is expecting how they order it so you might be able to make that preemptive like this is a little bit different to a traditional french 75 we batch it together we carbonate ourselves and it's so straight from bottle uh sometimes you can get a read on a customer and explain it to them but then so yeah sometimes you can't and then you hope your explanation once they get a glass in front of them it looks nothing like a traditional one and you can explain it to them uh, yeah you just have to hope that they will get the idea behind the drink basically yeah yeah i think that's a really good point actually what they're sort of missing in terms of watching you put it together can be yeah. made up for in the chat yeah and you can build in the you know the story behind the drink and it's almost as if they have been seeing it constructed because you because also you can like take a bit of poetic license and really em- emphasize like well we have to do this and this because it's the only yeah. way of making it taste this good we have to do the carbonation this way because that doesn't work on the fly all of this backbreaking work has gone in behind the scenes like the duck kind of paddling under the water yeah. but looking corns up uh, to make this one magnificent drink that yes i am only pouring from one bottle but, but a lot of work has gone. Yeah, into a lot of work, it. and it's and it's going to taste delicious. Yeah, it's it's true, and like there's so much about the perception of flavour and enjoyment that can be built in that way. I think, and you can, I mean, I'm not saying you can kind of trick people into liking things, mm. but you can really add in value and, and and heighten the experience by with a bit of blurb, you know. Yeah, completely. I think with the, the French seventy five, especially at the start, because look, and like we didn't obviously we're not the first people to carbonate and bottle a cocktail or batch of cocktail that's not we never like we're not they, that has been around for a long time but in terms of the the how often customers have seen it it wasn't that prevalent at the time and you know we made sure we pour it at the table we we didn't make a big show of it but you know we deliver the drinks pour it at the table and there was definitely like a build-up of anticipation because the customer's like oh oh, I didn't order wine, wine yeah. or what's going on. And you'd be like, oh, no, that's a cocktail. And it was like, it, it was an added experience for most mm. customers. Um, what about carbonation? Have you got any kind of tips on best practices for that and, you know, maybe mistakes or learnings that you've had along the way? Yeah, I mean, it's just like work, the normal things, work cold is the most important thing, I think. Work cold and... Um, Clarity, yeah. If you're going to force carbonate in plastic bottles by decent quality plastic bottles because they will mm. explode <laughs> yeah um and then cl- yeah clarity is important like yeah, it froths up if it's if it's got too much kind of stuff floating around in it hasn't it yeah um, I, I mean you can get uh, you can get a it can't be can't be like a, a cla- like an orange juice with bits but uh a liquid that isn't completely clarified you can get to to a certain level of carbonation it just 
as soon as you open it, it just won't hold it, basically. Um, and then, yeah, so we talk about temperature as well. So it's just much better to carbonate. You get much more carbon dioxide in and much quicker when it's cold, right? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So if you can start off with your liquid cold before you start carbonating, the process is a lot quicker. But if you can't, we, at three sheets uh, in ice, we always put it in ice. It's the coldest we can get it. And, yeah, just the colder the better because it will absorb more carbon dioxide. And then do you do you build like a kind of carbonation rig, for want of a better term, gas canister yes. and a pressure yeah. controller? Gas canister, regulator, uh, ball lock, disconnect, and carbonation caps, yeah. 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 And uh, that's pretty like Googleable kind of stuff, isn't it, for anyone that wants to? It's easy enough to, to set up. If you just speak to your gas supplier, you can get the, all the connections and stuff. You might have to search Google for like the carbonation caps and ball lock disconnect and but it's all really easy to find yeah if you want to learn about the science of cocktails if you want to learn about like how to produce things with with especially carbonation clarification then dave arnold like either his book or his online blog is is the one to go to because that's where you know luckily enough i did some work with him back in the day and you know he comes at it from a food science point of view and breaks it down pretty easily and and like fully we've set up we've now set up a bright tank rig which is a bit more intense but allows us to carbonate you know 130 liters at a time instead of one (laughs) a liter and a half at a time so Mm -hmm. this you know changes the game for us in terms of producing like a big batch of, of carbonated cocktails which you know is great for the bar but obviously really aimed at the bottled cocktail line what about fermentation? Done much with that? We ferment a bit, but not. We've there's a few recipes in the book about fermenting in bottle. Um, we haven't done too much of it, I think, because we don't. We just didn't have any space in the bar to be like, okay, cool. We can plan ahead for the next sort of three, four weeks. So, um, in terms of how much volume we had to have, we've we've done some non-carbonating ferments. You know. We get like seasonal fruits in, so we did fermented rhubarb a lot, which is great. And then cranberry, you know, mess yeah. around with some other fermentation stuff. Cranberry, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an incredible thing to do, right? It's like it, it develops flavor, it changes flavor, it produces new flavors. Um, so it's definitely a good addition. It's also great for you know getting fruit when it's good and 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 making it last a lot longer. Um, but you just like have to be careful. Obviously, you know you don't want to poison anyone, which is a, de- a definite potential when you start messing around with fermenting. Yeah, well, also there's the production of alcohol as well, isn't there? Which yeah. you've got to be careful about because if you're making enough of it, then you might get the inland revenue come and knock on your door saying, "Excuse me, but you owe us like a million pounds in tax because yeah. of all the all the alcohol you've been making." All the alcohol you're making, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to be careful that you don't create your own wine and beer well and also create the wrong type of alcohol but we 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 work with um a couple of you know um yeast producers you know white labs is one that we work with and you know they're very sort of open to conversations about how to get the best out of their yeast and make sure that you're working you know in the correct way to make sure you're not developing any you know like obviously not just alcohol but the wrong kind of alcohol as well um so we just had open conversations with as many people as possible to make sure we we're doing the things the right way. 
and also obviously just you know make sure you're upholding like the highest like standards of cleanliness as well um and fully sanitizing mm. everything um it's 90 percent cleaning really isn't it fermentation yeah it is 90 percent cleaning yeah mm-hmm. exactly that um you know and look there's a million books out there now that can will teach you how to ferment and obviously it's you know moved even further forward to like restaurants actually producing mold on veg fruit and vegetables to serve to customers so is it it's a almost like a an infinite world of possibilities but it's also you know make sure you know what you're doing rather than just you know chucking some stuff in a bucket and letting it bubble away um just to finish up a little bit what we know sort of what's happening with three sheets and the restaurant and everything with outside opening you're going to push forward with that you've got the wine and, and, and cocktail delivery going on like this is clearly a big thing so you're going to expand are you looking for sites what do you think you think there's a future market then for all this delivery stuff even in spite of people getting back in bars yeah i think i like we absolutely think there is we're investing a bit of money into the three sheets bottle line we're going to like have it do a bit of work on the branding um because i think there's definitely you know opportunity and desire for people to have something at home that they can access you know obviously people will be going back to restaurants and bars that's definitely going to happen but if you're talking about the whole of the uk market you know people with young children go to restaurants less but they still want to have that um experience you know people that don't live near a good bar where they can get a good drink want to have that experience so you know there's definitely um a market for it you know there's 70 million people in the uk you know you don't need to sell 70 million bottles of cocktail to have a decent business um so i think there will be i don't know if it will be like a growth in drinking at home after this because i think people will get out but people drink at home that's what that, that has been the case for a long time and it's not going to change anytime soon so we're trying to look at that saying okay cool we're not going to give you some like absolutely crazy wacky cocktail or something really different but you know we're going to bottle like a really good version of an old-fashioned or negroni and you can just have that sat in your fridge when you've had a long day you can you know go to that at the end of the day so i definitely think there is a market for it i think it was a growing market anyway and maybe that the last year has just sort of accelerated the maturity of it bars it shouldn't be it should be something that every bar should be looking at now as another like revenue stream because especially in terms of batching that's basically what you're doing when you bottle a cocktail and if you're Mm. practicing that already you have your bottled cocktail if your menu is batched in any way you have your bottled cocktail menu kind of set up for you so it's Mm. it's it's you just takes a little bit of thought process and and it's it's easily achievable yeah this is the thing i mean you are already batching i, I think the, the, the obviously the tricky bit is you've got a bottle you've got a label you've got a seal and then what you guys seem to have nailed is the delivery mechanism um is important too mm. yeah 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 for sure you need a route, a route to market it's definitely like not just click and go but it's definitely worth looking at i think it, our industry is an interesting one in that normally bricks and mortar we just rely on that and we don't try and create other revenue streams where the, whereas like every other sort of industry on the planet will try and have a few multiple revenue streams just in case they lose their main one so i think you know it's a big it's been a big conversation over lock, like lockdown over the last year that 
actually we need to start looking at, and whether it is bottle cocktails or something else, there needs to be backup revenue streams or other revenue streams because first and foremost, if you lose your main one, you've got something else to fall back on. But secondly, if you're not doing it, you only have one revenue stream when you could be earning extra income from other areas. Um, you know, and there's a, a million and one different things you can do, but bottled cocktails retail is one of them. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, and like I, I feel like some people have had huge amount of success in this, and it's ob- so obviously going to be a continual part of their offering. You guys, what you're doing, Hawksmoor, from what I can gather, are just like shifting ludicrous oh, volumes of bottle yeah, cocktails. Numbers, numbers are. I water really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. You see the videos yeah. that Liam's putting up of like oh, stock mate. delivery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I imagine that's, although saying that, they do pretty good revenue anyway. So I don't know how it compares to that, but I imagine it's going to remain a, a pretty um, consistent part of their offering. But um, yeah, I think that's probably a good message to end on. Really. It's not sort of too late to diversify the offering. and. Yeah. And pick it up and start doing it because if nothing else, you know, even if you're only selling a few, it's getting your brand into people's homes, isn't it? It's reminding people that you're there, and perhaps it's a trigger for them to come visit you when they're in town. Yeah, completely. Yeah, uh, I think that as well. And but but also like you know, if you're if you're on this sort of playlist of like bars to visit when you come to London, a lot of people come to London once a year, visit your bars, and you're they, you're giving them the opportunity to keep a part of the bar at home with them and also, you know, having that extra revenue. And also like, I mean, over the last year, it's about also being active and maintaining engagement, you know, with people as well, which has been key for us. And we wanted to make sure that we did that too. But, you know, it's definitely, you know, made us think outside the box. And I think everyone should, even if we get back to normal and even if all the bars, you know, bars open up again and bars are busy again, it's like, you know, think about how else you can generate revenue or engagement or you know whatever it is you're looking for it's definitely more than just the bricks and mortar and serving customers obviously that's the most important thing but if you can diversify then it's 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 fun as well though right like doing all the label design and like looking at the branding and and trying to sort of picture this drink as a retail product i find that really an interesting part of it yeah definitely and you you have to like you you learn bits that you can apply to operating in a bar as well you know it's it's just broadening your skill set broadening your awareness of your customer it makes you think about them differently too um and yeah you get like a cool product at the end of it it's nice you know you get to sell it i mean we're starting the wholesale journey now so we're wholesaling to a few independents and hopefully we'll get into some quite big shops soon as well so it's it's a good journey it makes you look at the process of creating a product which is always fun and it's exciting makes you look at the way that you build recipes as well which is only a good thing you know it's like it's just broadening your horizons i guess for sure right it's been really an interesting chat it's good to hear your take on it and and your successes thanks guys thanks for listening to the diageo bar academy bar chat podcast Follow and subscribe now for more episodes or to listen back to a whole range of interesting topics. And remember to rate or review as you listen. We're going to be taking a small break, but we will be back in September. We're lining up lots more exciting guests and hot topics related to the bar industry. So stay tuned and we will see you soon.